0: Before I start this week's episode, I'd just like to thank the photographer who created the image on the podcast cover art, and that was Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. Let's crack on. Hello, and welcome to the Financial Crime Weekly. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been a reasonably busy week this week. Uh, let's crack on. Some sanctions news, obviously, to start with, but the amount of news in relation to sanctions has really come down to a trickle, but there's at least one part of it which is of genuine interest in terms of its wider potential to develop the law. Quite a bit of money laundering news this week. The Financial Action Task Force has been a particularly busy entity this week. And a follow up on a fraud story from a couple of weeks ago. Now start this week with sanctions and a fairly significant story from the UK on the new powers derived from the Economic Crime, Transparency and Enforcement Act of 2022 that was passed earlier this year. In fact, it received the Royal Assent in March. And the fruits of it are certainly now being felt more widely uh, than in relation simply to sanctions implementation themselves. This is because of a significant change brought about by the statute in relation to enforcement of sanctions against those who might breach them. From the 15th of June 2022, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has the power to issue monetary penalties for financial sanctions breaches on a strict liability basis. Whereas before, OFSI needed to show that they were satisfied on the balance of probabilities, which is the civil standard, that an individual knew, suspected, or believed that they were in breach of sanctions. While it will no longer be necessary for OFSI to show the elements identified, OFSI will still need to show that sanctions were breached on the balance of probabilities. The change is significant for two reasons. First, it's likely to increase the number of successful enforcement actions taken against those who breach sanctions and, secondly, It's part of a wider trend to use a strict liability approach in relation to what might be regarded as financial or economic crimes. The more it can be seen that offences with a strict liability response produce a positive deterrent effect without the need for such a challenging test of proof based on knowledge or intent or something else, the easier it'll be for the authorities to extend strict liability offences to other areas of financial crime. For example, by the creation of financial uh, failure to prevent money laundering, failure to prevent fraud, or even a general failure to prevent economic crime offence. Now, this was something that I looked at this week in a special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, where I looked at the all-party parliamentary group's manifesto, as well as a Law Commission options paper that was published last week, both of which looked at the possibility of increasing the range of strict liability offences available in the law. Worth listening to, even though I do say so myself. The other story this week, which is worth covering in relations to UK sanctions following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is the decision of the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office, the FCDO, to sanction further individuals either close to the Putin regime or supportive of its actions. First, and, frankly, in what I regard as one of the more staggering elements of the invasion. First, that the Russian Children's Rights Commissioner, Maria Lvova-Balova, who is alleged to have been concerned in the forced adoption and transfer of children in Ukraine. This, to me, is one of the underreported aspects of the invasion, and it's welcome to see that res- a response to these appalling allegations has finally been made. The second high-level sanction relates to the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, Patriarch Kirill. Kirill has been prominent in his support for the invasion, which, for a man of faith, might seem to be a little odd. Remember, Kirill had a strip torn off him by the Pope last month when he was labelled Putin's altar boy. But, frankly, even the view of the Pope seemed to have softened in the last week with some slightly... Worrying comments coming from the pontiff. Anyway, I'll leave that. The sanctioning of Kirill has been trailed globally for a number of months. The EU has tried to sanction Kirill, but objections from Hungary – who else? They're the thorn in the aside of the sanctions regimes in the EU EU, – said that the matter was one of religious freedom, which is, at best, questionable, and at worst, utter nonsense. Anyway. I don't think I'll say any more about that issue. Let's leave UK sanctions on the Russian Federation for another week, although there may be even less next week. Let's turn to money laundering, where it's been a busy old week, actually. Mainly surrounding the work of the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, as it's known. First, we start with a bit of a mixed picture for the UK. This was reported in a rather more positive way than I thought it would be. But anyway, I regard it as a mixed picture for the UK, in that the FATF has published its follow-up report and technical compliance re-rating for the United Kingdom, identifying that since its 2018 mutual evaluation report, though some improvements have been made, work remains to be done. First, Due to changes to the money laundering regulations in relation to the definition of third countries, the requirement in relation to enhanced due diligence measures for correspondent banking was changed from partially compliant in 2018 to compliant now. So that's a positive. The United Kingdom has done the right thing there in changing that definition and therefore upticking themselves from partially compliant to compliant. Secondly and I suppose of a little bit more concern, there were concerns in the the, um, MER, the Mutual Evaluation Report, there were some concerns in the Mutual Evaluation Report about the operational independence of the United Kingdom's Financial Intelligence Unit. Now these have, to a degree, been addressed. Not wholeheartedly, there are still some things that need to be done. The follow-up report notes that despite the increase in staffing levels from just under 100 to about 140 – so there has been an increase in staffing levels – despite that increase, this, this number of staff remains relatively low given the size of the United Kingdom's financial services sector and, I suppose, that the risks uh, that are posed to the financial services sector because it is so large. Of course, the government has also committed to overhauling the suspicious activity reports regime, but still the level of staff to look at, oversee, to analyse those suspicious activity reports remains low. Therefore, the Financial Action Task Force didn't feel that they could change the 2018 rating of partially compliant to a rating of compliant. So that remains, even following the review, partially compliant. In relation to cooperation and coordination between relevant authorities to ensure compatibility of anti-money laundering and countering financing of terrorism requirements with data protection and privacy rules, which was amended since the 2018 MER, the status of the UK remains compliant following the amendments. Finally, in relation to new technologies and the threat which they pose as a mechanism for money laundering, the UK remains largely compliant. But gaps remain. For example, there is some element of ambiguity as to whether United Kingdom law, if there is such a thing, covers transfers of virtual assets. This is something which the United Kingdom government has committed to address. Now. We'll stick with the Financial Action Task Force because it has announced that there should be a partnership between the public and private sectors in relation to the development of new technology to combat money laundering and terrorist financing. Financial Action Task Force President Dr Marcus Player said, and I quote, If we operate in bubbles, a bubble fighting crime, a bubble protecting privacy rights, a bubble for the private sector, a bubble for developing new technology, Then we fail to address the real problems we face today. Connecting the dots across our various specialism lets us see the bigger picture and solve the big problems of today and tomorrow. Now, what can I say about this statement? Well, first of all, it's welcome to see new terminology with the use of bubbles, rather than the irritatingly tedious silos which is so beloved of management speak. Secondly, If there's one area of the modern financial crime world where public and private sectors have significant experience of working together, then it is in relation to the fight against money laundering. However, with more in the news this week about the costs of financial compliance and their burden on the private sector, and the fact that public money is tight following the costs of the pandemic and the recovery from it, such a collaborative approach to AML and CFT, that is, anti-money laundering and the countering of the financing of terrorism, in relation to technological development, may well come down to funding. Money is tight for everyone, and that may be the difficulty at the moment. One final piece of news concerning the Financial Action Task Force this week. This time it's Pakistan's status on the grey list. Uh, The FATF places countries on its grey list, or to give it its proper title, its jurisdictions under increased monitoring, where those countries pose a particular risk to the international financial system. Now, Pakistan was placed on the FATF grey list in June 2018, when it was urged to embolden its anti-money laundering laws and to increase its fight against financing terrorism, which of course is a, a particular problem in pakistan because of its associated with uh, some forms of islamist terrorism now since being placed on the gray list pakistan has enacted laws against money laundering and terror financing and amended existing laws to ensure compliance with the conditions the fat f placed upon it well this week the fat f announced that Pakistan is to remain on its grey list, in fact it did did that on Friday this week, but that it is well placed to leave the grey list if an on-site visit is able to demonstrate the nature and extent of the reforms being implemented sustainably and further that the political will remains in place to see that compliance continues. Now from what I've read I would suggest that the political will does remain in place, a press conference was held yesterday by Hina Rabbani-Kar, who is the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs in Pakistan, and she said that Pakistan is only one step away from exiting the grey list. It would seem that one of the conditions that there is a political will for it to happen is certainly prevalent. That's it for the FATF. I told you they have been busy. Now, the European Banking Authority has this week published its guidelines for specifying the role and responsibilities of the Anti-Money Laundering and Countering the Financing of Terrorism compliance officers and of the management body of credit or financial institutions. These guidelines, so the announcement provides, aim to ensure a common interpretation and adequate implementation of uh, Anti-Money Laundering and Countering the Financing of Terrorism internal governance arrangements across the European Union in line with the requirements of the EU directive on the prevention of the use of the financial system for the purposes of money laundering or terrorist financing. These guidelines are valuable in that they establish clear expectations on the role, tasks and responsibilities of the AML-CFT compliance officer and the management body. They specify that credit or financial institution should appoint one member of their management body who will ultimately be responsible for the implementation of the AML and CFT obligations and clarify the tasks and functions of that person. That naturally sets the tone from the top, with the idea that the seriousness with which the organisation takes AML and CFT should cascade through the institution. Well, that's the theory anyway. A couple of final things this week. The UK government has published the outcome of its consultation, which ran from July to October last year, on the money laundering, terrorist financing and transfer of funds information on the payer regulations 2017, or the money laundering regulations 2017, to give them their pithier title. The consultation on the regulations was necessary to ensure compliance with international standards whilst also strengthening and to provide clarity on how the United Kingdom's anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing regime operates. It might be worth doing a deeper dive on these once the UK government has also published, which it's committed to do by the end of this month, that is June 2022, The findings of its call for evidence to inform a broader review of the united kingdom's aml and cft regulatory and supervisory regimes for now watch this space and of course the outcome of the consultation can be read on the government's website and finally this week a bit of the blast from the past the panama papers yes we all remember them and the fun we had talking about them now This week in Panama, a judge has dismissed the case against several of those involved or concerned with the Panama Papers, including the two founding lawyers of Mossack Fonseca, the now defunct law firm which was at the centre of the scandal. You'll remember that there were many allegations, but the particular allegations in this case, which has been dismissed this week, were relating to the hiding of illicit cash from a Brazilian construction company. The release of the Panama Papers in 2016 exposed the use of offshore financial centres by the rich and powerful seeking to remove their assets from the prying eyes of tax authorities and others. Indeed, in an example of the world coming full circle, some of those who now see themselves subject to high-profile sanctions globally, mostly allies of Putin, were implicated quite heavily in those leaks. I suppose Lenin, or was it da Vinci? Certainly one of them said it. Everything is connected to everything else. And finally this week, a bit of fraud. This is a story that harks back to something which we covered two weeks ago on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, namely... That of the perpetrators of a thirty-seven million pounds ethical investment scam, who were found guilty at Southwark Crown Court of three charges of conspiracy to defraud and one of misconduct when winding up a company, Andrew Nathaniel Skeen and Junie Conrad Amari Boers conned victims who they thought were Im- who thought they were investing in an ethical and environmental scheme to protect the Amazonian rainforest and invest sustainably in communities in the region, when, in fact, it was an elaborate scam of global money transfers, forged documents and invented identities, all of which was designed to take money from pensioners and those with an interest in environmental matters. In total, I think about 2,000 victims were identified. Well, this week Skeen and Bowers The minds behind it all were sentenced to 11 years of imprisonment. There's a good press release on the Serious Fraud Office website which summarises some of the words of the judge, and I'll share them with you now. His Honour Judge Pegden QC said, The investors believed they were buying into an ethical investment scheme which would yield a safe and steady income but the reality was that you wrote or said things about the schemes which were either false or misleading at the outset, or became so, and you failed to correct them. The judge noted, quote, the serious detrimental impact the schemes had had on investors, together with the prolonged distress and mental anguish that they had suffered. They have also, that is Skeen and Bowers, been disqualified as company directors, though I would imagine the moment. That's the least of their worries. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Subscribe if you want to, wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you all over again next Sunday.